0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Tanya Evans to tell us all about her fascinating book titled Family History, Historical Consciousness, and Citizenship, published by Bloomsbury in 2022, which looks at something that's incredibly important, I think at least, and I think the book makes a really compelling case for, family history um, and the practice of people researching their own family history in ways that are often outside of academia and the formal sort of historical discipline. Um, But as this book shows, this is a really widely practiced form of public history. It can be incredibly empowering. It can have all sorts of really interesting political community effects. and it's something that the historical academic study should probably take more seriously. So, Tanya, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Well,
1: that's my pleasure.
0: Before we dive into your book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure, Miranda. Um, So, I'm Tanya Evans, as you said. I'm a professor of history at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, but I trained as a historian back in Britain, And I moved to Australia about 15 years ago. Um, For many decades, I've worked as an historian of the family. I've written three books on the history of motherhood, Um, My PhD research focused on um, poor working class mothers in 18th century London. And um, for this, I I worked particularly on the archives of the Foundling Hospital, but also lying in hospitals and the poor law. Um, And after that, I worked with Professor Pat Thane. Um, who retired from King's College a little while ago. Um, But we worked together at the Centre for Contemporary British History at the Institute of Historical Research in London um, on a project um, on unmarried motherhood in 18th century um, England. Sorry, no, in 20th century England. (laughs) Sorry, my first book was on 18th century England. My my second was on, on the 20th century. So you can probably see already that I was long interested in um sort of non-traditional non-nuclear family forms and um, and really interested in writing feminist history. So these themes will kind of play out in in this uh, last book um, that I wrote. Um, And after working on that project, um, I sort of fell in love with Australia (laughs) after I came for a a big uh, tour following my PhD and sort of tried to figure out ways of working my way back. And um, I eventually... Um, applied for a research fellowship at Macquarie University uh, for a project that would enable me to examine the transnational history of motherhood in both Britain and Australia in the 19th century. Um, And when I arrived in Australia, I was working between the two countries, um, uh, researching in archives in both countries. And when I was doing so, I was becoming increasingly aware of the the you know the hundreds the thousands the millions of family historians that were undertaking research in these two different national contexts, and I suppose I wanted to to get to the to, to the bottom of this because what was clear to me. Um, And I'd long been um, a social historian, um, really interested in the lives of ordinary everyday people and also um, thinking about those ordinary everyday people as audiences for my work. Um, I was really conscious of the um, disdain and disparagement shown uh, towards or demonstrated towards family historians within archives, you know, um, academic historians would often be very snooty about noisy family historians and and what I decided to, to continue to work on to research was the practice of family history to better understand um, how we might um, understand the growth in the huge global phenomenon of of family history and what impact um, those researchers might have on academics and what um, beneficial relationships might um, uh, might be formed as a result of communicating with them um, and that's really where the project began and um, after the, that project that I worked on on the t- sort of transnational history of motherhood in both Australia and England actually turned into a book that I hadn't quite planned at the time but um, um, resulted in me um, undertaking a collaboration with the Benevolent Society of New South Wales which was which is one of the um, oldest surviving charities established in in Sydney in 1813. Um, and I, I'd already kind of worked um, collaboratively with a contemporary NGO in Britain. And I was really keen um, to, to undertake that work because um, I was thinking about how to how to make my historical research more impactful by engaging with organisations like these, making really obvious the relationship between past and present. Um, So I worked with the Benevolent Society um, on um, and collaborated with them on a book that um, uh, was entitled Fractured Families, Life on the Margins in Colonial New South Wales and that book involved writing a history of poverty in 19th century New South Wales Um, and I wrote that in collaboration with family historians who were undertaking research on their ancestors who had called upon the Benevolent Asylum in the 19th century and and the Benevolent Asylum worked a little bit like the poor law in 19th century um, England and Wales Um, so that book provided the foundation for uh, that, the later work for family history, historical consciousness and citizenship um, because I wanted to undertake in-depth surveys and interviews with family historians in order to better understand um, the impact of uh, undertaking family history research on them and also the discipline and how we might understand the growth in the practice. So that's a very long-winded answer, Miranda, sorry.
0: (laughs) But a very helpful one. So thank you for taking us through that. I think it raises a number of points that we're probably going to get more into. Um, But staying on this idea of kind of the wider impact of these family histories, you know, we've mentioned a little bit about sort of the snootiness in academia um, and the potential that you found collaborating with them. So could you tell us a bit more about kind of the political potential that you think family research and communication about family research has? It's not just investigating what these people do, but kind of the bigger picture. Yes.
1: Well, I mean, what was really interesting to me is, is, I mean, first off, um, family historians um, can incredibly passionate researchers. They can they can become very excited about their topic and they have this real thirst for knowledge. And for those of us who work within academic contexts in, in universities, sometimes it's great to experience this thirst for knowledge because it's not always the case amongst one students, although I've had some brilliant students in the last little while. Um, so I was really interested in um, meeting the needs and understanding better these, um, these lifelong learners and their engagements with history. Um, and what I argue in the book is that um, family history shouldn't be dismissed as a sort of narcissistic self-centered enterprise, because actually what family history was doing, the the process of undertaking historical research, both primary and secondary research on family lines, was actually transforming uh, people in the present. So they uh, were learning about the history of poverty, of racism, of sexism, of of, 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 of classism in the past, Um, and it was transforming their engagements. people and society in the present. So what was really interesting to me is that um, many of the family historians who um, communicated with me via their survey would talk about how they were transformed by their research. Um, They had become much more sociable, much more engaged with their local communities, with political organisations. Uh, thoughtful participants in uh, debates around refugees in diverse national contexts and really passionate um, engages within their community. It also transformed um, their engagements with their uh, private family members as well but it also kind of really um, transformed their understandings of what the family was. So again, you know, when people um, think about the family as a sort of trans-historical phenomenon that doesn't change over time, what family the historians were doing using their research was um, really picking apart what family meant across time. Uh, And this was having a profound impact on them as individuals within the families within which they were situated, um, and also made them think about the future. So this is, you know, some of the transformative impacts, you know, some became involved with women's history organisations, because um, they became aware through their family history of the diverse ways in which women have been marginalised in the past and the present. And so their um, engagements with family history was... Really, kind of changing the way they thought about history. That, you know, at school for them had been a subject that was dominated by rich white men, um, kings and queens, um, but not the ordinary, everyday people that many of their families came from. Um, and they became really passionate about charting those histories um, and making people aware of them, giving them a voice um, in the present.
0: Mm, very powerful indeed given that family research especially um to kind of make it more explicit that we were often talking in this about sort of Australia New Zealand Britain right we we know a lot of those um, histories of families traveling around both within well i suppose back then there weren't necessarily borders dividing them but now they're separate countries um to what extent did you find these researchers um the kind of the feelings they were having the impacts it was having on them the way they were going about it were there national cultures of family research or much more in the sort of transnational borders or more modern concept How how did the kind of changing borders and nationalities aspect of this play into both the research that was being done and the researchers themselves
1: yeah, well this is certainly something that has changed over time and um, you know the practice of family history in England has a really long history and it was long associated with pedigrees and elitism rather than with the ordinary but like many other contexts after the 1970s becomes an increasingly democratized practice and there's been some really great research done on um National organizations of genealogists and how their they have their const, their, const, uh, their constituents have changed over time. Although actually, I think there is this is an area ripe for study as well. I think there is much more uh, we could research and learn about um, family history organizations. Um, but setting that aside, um, family history as a phenomenon has been incredibly popular in settler colonial nations um, and. For a long time, people put that down to new roots and people seeking, seeking roots, figuring out ways in which to make sense of themselves in new um, migrant communities. Um, and that's certainly true. So, family history is especially popular in Canada, in South Africa, in Australia, in New Zealand, um, and in settler colonial nations. Now, of course, the practice is um, determined by the availability of evidence, and people's access to the archives was constrained for a really long time. Um, really, until the late 20th century, you know, very few people would um, visit uh, national archives. Um, and of course, family historians. Um, really make up the bulk of, of visitors to many, many archival institutions and libraries around the world now. And that is a, pro- a practice and process that has um, been facilitated by digitization as well. So while there are definitely distinct... Sort of national, and I should say that the book is, is, is only focused on English speaking nations, which you know reflects my unfortunate capacity to only speak English uh, for research purposes. Um, but there is some fantastic research that is now coming out globally, uh, revealing the different ways in which family history is practiced in non English speaking nations. Um, And, you know, I could list (laughs) many wonderful examples. Um, uh, But so while there are distinct national cultures of um, family history practice, this is undoubtedly a global community that has been structured and facilitated by digitization, uh, the sharing of sources globally, and of course, um, big behemoths like Ancestry.com and, and um, 23 um, and Me, um, uh, which offer DNA tests, but also, of course, the Church of a Latter-day Sense that, um, you know, enables um, people uh, or facilitates research on fam- birth mass and, m- uh, sorry, birth marriages and deaths, sorry, it's been a long day, birth marriages and deaths around the world. So um, this is undoubtedly a global community and family history. There's a huge industry now in family history tourism, in family history cruises. I Well, certainly pre-COVID, I got asked a lot to go and give lectures on family history cruises. There is family history tourism um, there are walking tours associated with family history in China, Japan, Australia, Ireland, all sorts of spaces all over the world. Um, and the community certainly um, communicates via the Internet. So many of the family historians I I spoke with um work collaboratively with other researchers around the world. So they volunteer to take pictures of graveyards or to undertake um, archival research and share data uh, with others in order to piece together uh, or help to piece together other people's family trees and mysteries. Um, And it's an extraordinary uh, community that is both national but also transnational at the same time
0: absolutely fascinating Um, especially in reading the book there's so many details about kind of some of these particular interactions and I was struck as well by not just the kind of fact of the transnational community and the way it's facilitated but by how clear the kind of values and norms are within the community that's very much sort of self-created. So I was wondering if you could tell us maybe a bit about kind of what these shared values are, how it's talked about and um, within the community.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the funny historians are not a homogenous community. There are gazillions of them. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, they don't all get on swingly well, although the ones I communicated with um, have uh, amazing uh, uh relationships with other family historians. I often say that, or they often told me that they were often closer to other family history researchers than they were to their kith and kin, their own biological families. So again, kind of reframing their understanding of of family and kinship in the process. Um, So um, the community has a very firm sense uh, well, some family history communities, certainly ones inside, uh, constituted within family history societies and national networks of genealogists, have um, a very uh, professional. Um, understanding of themselves as researchers. They have qualifications, they um, encourage the acquisition of diplomas um, for research and different levels of research um, and qualifications. And they police their community much uh, the way academics um, police their community, if we want to think of it like that. Um, There is um, processes of peer reviewing in place, for example. So there is a very kind of particular sense of how one is supposed to do family history Um, and for many years um, that was predicated on archival research um, that took place within um, archival institutions like libraries um, uh, and archival repositories now of course a lot of that is online done online Um, and the community does police itself in important ways some uh, some family historians are very careful with the data and information that they share with others, some will share everything with everybody uh, some will pop their details on Ancestry's public trees for everyone to use, other people are much more, should we say, careful with the information that they share because they feel like they've been burned in the past where people have sort of swiped data from their trees and then uploaded it and, and make mistakes in the process, so as I say, the this community polices itself in significant ways, but they also are enormously collaborative and um, have a firm sense of pedagogy um, involved in their practice. So, Many take it upon themselves to train newbies in how to do research. And they come together at meetings. I've given hundreds of family history talks to societies across Australia, predominantly, but also in Canada and the UK, um, where these communities um, come together to learn from others. They learn from academics like me, but much more frequently from other family historians. Um, And, you know, an organisation that I've worked a lot with, the Society of Australia, genealogists that's based in Sydney. For them COVID produced an extraordinary um, educational opportunity. Um, They have many more hundreds of people participating in education workshops, um, talks, symposiums um, than they ever did pre-COVID because Zoom has enabled them to communicate more effectively with an audience not just in Australia but all over the world um, which they have found fantastically energising and has also meant that this community can start to think about diversifying itself. Um, Lots of family history organisations, certainly the ones that I've spoken with, are concerned about the ageing demographic Um, And they worry about how to encourage younger people to become engaged with family history. And I have certainly encouraged my um, students to undertake internships at the Society of Australian Genealogists to work with um, people there to learn about the value of family history and how they might help uh, with projects for these organisations. They have many talks about ethics and how to deal with the issues of um, family secrets, Um, and many people are are profoundly concerned with making sure they don't tread on toes or upset people in the process of undertaking their research that's not to say that doesn't happen and it does and certainly people have been burned but um, I I received many emails from people asking just about that, you know, how do we deal with uh, the, the issues of ethics? And I point them to various resources. But so, and societies really help um, uh, family, individual family historians with that. I mean, I guess, of course, lots of family historians also are not members of societies. So they find them restrictive and um, not always inclusive, um, and they undertake. Research on their own just using the internet to do so. Um, This is especially the case for younger people. Um, There's some really interesting data out there suggesting that. People become engaged with family history at particular moments in the life cycle. Um, And this is often the case when mothers have babies. So they're really interested in uh, the people who've come before them, but also thinking about how uh, to frame their child in their futures as well, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, the community is certainly not homogenous, but um, there are many societies that do understand themselves as a community and both a a, a local, a national and um, a, a global level community as well.
0: Absolutely fascinating and I'd love to ask a little bit more about kind of the ethical side of it because of course um, your earlier answer you talk about kind of the effect that this has on people's conception of history of bringing out the voices that were not there of having them think about things like refugee questions today in a different light Um, and of course if you're The one person in your family researching those things, if maybe you feel more kinship with other researchers than with your family, as you said, uh, that can cause some tensions within the family to suddenly have someone kind of go, oh, wait a second, I'm rethinking this. And then there's, of course, the idea of family secrets um, and sort of digging around. So what are some of the ways that family researchers kind of deal with these ethical issues and the kind of difficult conversations around it within the family?
1: Well, look. Lots of them never say a word, right? They they keep it to themselves or to the people that they can communicate with outside of the family. But others take it upon themselves to have those difficult questions and conversations. Um, um, and to, I mean, it's you know those those grandmothers who kept secret um, the birth legitimate children, um, for example, are are really common stories that um, families tell. There are other stories around um, violence, domestic violence within families, um, other stories around homophobia uh, and um, discrimination towards all sorts of people. Um, But some people are very willing to to, to take on those battles. I mean, look. I guess it's really dependent upon personalities. And to be honest, it's really not unlike how a lot of families operate anyway, in terms, I think, of the tensions and trials and tribulations that many negotiate on a day-to-day level. Um, What I think is interesting is how it hopefully encourages people to think how important a sense and understanding of history is to one's sense of self. Um, And this is why I think, you know, a focus on family history is so very important because that's the bigger message, right? Um, People, and, you know, clearly at different points in time, Uh, different stigmas have been more important than others. Um, And we have seen how people's reaction to, for example, in Australia for, you know, well over a century, it was a huge embarrassment to discover you had a convict in your family tree. Now, you know, those convicts are a source of pride. Um, It's mostly the same with the discovery of illegitimate children. Um, What hasn't changed, though, um, which I think is significant, and again, I think is an area ripe for for future study, is how people and families are still really struggling to come to terms with discovering um, mental health issues within family trees. Um, There is undoubtedly still a stigma around um, this subject. Um, And I I think that needs further study but yeah and you know I think there is more we can learn and there's a historian here in Australia Ashley Barnwell she's not a historian she well she might describe as a historian herself at times but she's a sociologist at Melbourne Ashley Barnwell whose um, research project is precisely focused upon how families deal with these um, these um, secrets and lies um, and uh, particularly around um, uh, settler-colonial violence in the Australian context as well. So, yeah, again, there's much more we we can learn about what impact these secrets have on families and how they are negotiated. But as I say, I think it's important to encourage people to think about... Um, using history to understand that, and as I argue in the book, using history uh, to become more empathetic, to become more aware of people's different paths, uh, the reasons for certain things, and how we might think about how to make sense of that now and in the future.
0: One aspect that you talk about in the book um, of kind of uncovering these family secrets or maybe even things that weren't necessarily meant to be secrets but kind of have become them over time is through the use of material culture, right? We think about often ancestry.com and DNA tests or, you know, finding a diary or letters tucked away. But there's a lot of other types of materials that these historians are using, often things that maybe over time the story about it has been forgotten. Um, and excavating it and kind of bringing things to life. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about um, the focus on material culture, bringing that into family history research and what sort of stories and ideas and identities about family history that that opens up.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the reasons I like a focus on material culture so much is because many people have... uh, very emotional reactions towards objects of material culture. Um, people who aren't trained as historians, who you know, people like us who are, you know love the archive and written documents, etc. Um, for lots of people, they can get much more excited about a picture or a lock of hair or um, uh, a piece of clothing that has some attachment to a family member. And I've always been interested in material culture, um, particularly because within the family, um, so much of it has remained invisible. Um, And this is, you know, partly one of the big messages of the book. Um, It's, you know one of the reasons why people have been so derisory towards family history for so long is because it is practiced predominantly by women. Um, There is a lot more we could learn about the statistical profile of family historians, but it undoubtedly, um, at least in my experience, it's mostly women that undertake family histories. And I think people are often derisory because a society doesn't really value mature women. Um, And Another issue that I wanted to focus on is that it is women who often collect family heirlooms. And this is why that history needs to be made more visible, um, because we need to know why they have collected those family heirlooms. And my argument in the book is that it often, not always, um, uh, women are using material culture as part of their family history to make their mark um on the past to make their mark on their family history um and you know the reason this is why we need to examine why certain photos certain pieces of clothing have been treasured over the years and passed down sometimes with stories alongside them but sometimes not and it's often the family historian that is there to bring that story to life Um, and that's a political process it's it's bringing to life um, the histories of women ordinary women, um, hidden within houses and homes that have been marginalised up until now. Um, And it produces a fascinating history. I mean, one of the other things I'm really interested in is how People can. So, you know, I I spent decades speaking with family historians who um, spent decades undertaking research, just gathering more and more data. And I would say, well, what are you going to do with this data? Oh, I might write a small book for the family. And what I wanted to do was to encourage them to think about how to broaden the audience for their work. And now we have some amazing examples, I'm not saying that as a result of my conversations with anyone, but around the world, we have amazing examples of creative engagements with family history. Um, There are artists working with family history, producing incredible works of art. There are poets, there are novelists, there are creative nonfiction writers. Um, There's some fantastic work being undertaken, bringing together people's family histories and contemporary engagements with. Um, with art and uh, and creativity, so for me, and of course, hopefully, in that process, we again broaden the audience for history by. And, and also um, encouraging people to think about how important history is in everyday life and how it it, 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 it is constituted in everyday life and consumed in everyday life. Um, and that's why I think those creative engagements are really, really exciting. Just recently, I worked with a former PhD student of mine who wrote a PhD on the history of divorce in, in the turn of the 20th century, Sydney. And we brought together a collection for the journal Life Writing um, with um, writers, some of whom were historians, some of whom were creative uh, writers working with family history um, to and globally as well, um, hopefully encouraging others to, um, undertake this this type of work, this reckoning with the past in the present. Um, anyway, that's, that's why I'm so excited about some of those creative engagements. And who doesn't love a, a family Bible uh, to look at and to think about?
0: No, very much so. Um, very exciting there. And in a lot of ways, sort of touches on a point you raise in the book that I'd love to ask you about directly, which is sort of the kind of Why are people doing this, right? In some senses, it's about raising voices um, that have been lost. But they're also, when you asked the researchers, a lot of answers seem to come back about legacy, about creating something going forward. Could you tell us about kind of the role that legacy and thinking about it plays in motivating this work?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I've become, in recent years, I've worked more with educational psychologists and cognitive scientists. Um, And if we've got time, I'll tell you about another project I'm working on in a little while. But they've encouraged me to think about um, a concept um, called generativity. And this is where people who are coming towards the end of their lives sometimes, um, perhaps past their prime, are starting to think about a legacy to leave for future generations. So for some, uh, that might be parents thinking about what to leave um, for their children. Um, For others who participate um, as voluntary workers within their communities, they're thinking about their legacy for their communities. So this kind of idea of generativity can take different forms but it seems to me that family history can be seen as a really excellent example of generativity Um, and what's really exciting about it is it makes people feel really good about themselves so we know that as people age um, they often become lonelier Um, sometimes more socially excluded. Um, They sometimes feel like they lose their purpose in life. And family history for people like this um, gives them purpose. It gives them a sense of self, a sense of their... um, self in relationship to their family and their community that can be constituted locally, nationally, or globally. Um, But it also makes them think about um, their legacy for their families rather differently as well. So it has really positive um, well-being outcomes um, for um, family history researchers. it makes, them become, makes people much less selfish, I think, uh, than they might be if all they did was think about themselves and no one else. Um, family history encourages them to think outside of themselves, to think outside the individual and to think about the social um, and how individuals Can be um, powerful agents of change on many different levels. Um, And I think that's why it's particularly exciting. And I think, you know, this is why I want family historians to think about the different ways in which. Um, they can produce outputs from their research. You know, we're, we're familiar with these terms as, as academics. You know, what, what will be the outcome of your research? What will be the outputs? Well, I, I want family historians to think like that, too. And this is why um, I've increasingly collaborated with them in recent years um, and why it's important to participate in symposiums and conferences and why colleagues are doing this all over the world um, in order to understand and to share how important this form of history-making is for academics as well as ordinary people. Um, As as an academic historian, this is really how we can demonstrate the impact of history as a discipline. And this is really important at this present moment when, you know, in both of our contexts in in Australia and in the UK, governments and others are, uh, shall we say, not entirely... um, supportive of history as a discipline and family historians can make us and others realise just how important and significant history is.
0: Before I ask you about your particular future work, um, and we get all excited about that, um, I'd love to end on that. So before we get there, um, could you give us maybe a bigger picture of thought of what you'd like to see in terms of collaboration between family history researchers and academics and in this field sort of writ large before we get into your particular bits.
1: Yeah, I would love to see more collaboration. I've just um, recently published an article with Jerome de Groot and Matthew Stallard, who have both worked with me on family history for a long time since, well, back in 2016. And and they have also undertaken collaborative work with family historians around the world. We want to sort of um, bring an end to this kind of top-down pedagogy that sometimes characterises academic engagement with diverse communities. And these are all kind of key words that academic have been using for some time now, as we have been structured by the impact and engagement agenda. And what we want to do is to think really carefully about kind of messing up the power relations between academic and other types of researchers. Um, We need to respect people who come to historical research from diverse pathways who have not undertaken the same training as us, but have been trained in a huge range of other occupations bringing new skills, fresh ideas and innovation to a field um, that could do with that innovation and excitement. So, you know, how can we rethink the ways in which academics disseminate their work, um, undertake research that will better uh, enable more equal and inclusive collaborative practices Uh, and this is really um, the focus of my research um, now and in the future i love working in large teams um, made up of people not like myself not trained like myself all of us bringing our diverse expertise, our diverse knowledge, our diverse passions about history um, to work collaboratively on the same project, uh, hopefully bringing new audiences and participants um, to the party.
0: Well, so would you like to tell us about any of those projects in detail, um, either ones you're currently working on or looking to work on? Um, tell us what you can.
1: Look, I'm the kind of person that likes to juggle a lot of projects at one time. So there's there's three I'm working on at the moment. Um, I'll, t- I'll talk you through them quickly. There's one um, based in the Blue Mountains in Australia, uh, which is directly related to family history. Um, And it involves a team of historians, um, archaeologists, historical archaeologists and heritage consultants, um, along with the tourist industry in the Blue Mountains working on trying to piece together the forgotten history of a shale mining settlement in the mountains. So you may or may not know, listeners may or may not know that the Blue Mountains are a spectacular site. And we know very little about its history. Uh, And it has a fascinating industrial past. And I, with my colleagues, are using family history to piece together the history of women, of children, of Aboriginal people, and um, its working class history. Uh, and to make kind of community members much more aware of this history rather than just the beautiful mountains within which they live. So that's a that's a very exciting project. Um, another one that I'm working on that I just alluded to with cognitive um, uh, scientists and educational psychologists is um, a project on memory. And we have trained local high school students um, to undertake oral history interviews um, and sort of conversations about the past with aged care residents. Um, and we have examined uh, the stories that um, those um, participants have told about family life in the past. Um, This is a project that's really focused again on making both those young and older participants aware of the significance of history, um, but also of the power of cultural scripts in the ways in which we narrate our family life. Um, And for many of those aged care residents, all of whom are women, um, for them, their family is front and centre of the stories that they tell about their lives. Um, So that's been another exciting project that is related to family history. Um, and my third project, which isn't really about the family, so I'll be super brief, is um, uh, a community history of sport. So I've been working with colleagues in health and human sciences, examining. I, I, a few years ago, I did an oral history project on. Um, uh, female athletes in New South Wales that was built off a, a community history of a local swimming club that I wrote. Um, and I'm really, it's a good moment because uh, <laughs> as we're in the World Cup um, finals fever in Australia at the moment, and when where people's engagement with women's um, sport has been completely transformed, um, it's an exciting moment to be studying this. Um, but I'm really interested in examining how elite athletes' stories um, about their sporting success are making an impact on the stories that ordinary athletes um, tell about their engagement with sport. And it will be no surprise to you to know that the family is again front and centre of those stories. Um, and so this is why you know the, the family can uh, make its way into almost any subject that I will study and I'm sure will continue to do so until I retire.
0: Well, those sound like fascinating projects. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Um, I think there'll be a lot of people, myself included, who want to see what happens with them. So best of luck on all three fronts. Um, And of course, while you're working on them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, Family History, Historical Consciousness and Citizenship, published by Bloomsbury. Tanya, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. It's been a delight talking with you, Miranda. Thank you.